Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Today's interview is with Abe Scherner. Abe Scherner has been a disruptor and part of the avant-garde of the New School of California wine for so long that he's old school, new school. Since 2000, he's been the mind behind the Scolium Project, his winery slash philosophical pursuit of a natural vineyard-specific wine experience. But recently, he's moved his base of operations to downtown Los Angeles and is beginning to make wines from unique old vineyards in Southern California under the auspices of the Los Angeles River Wine Company. Some of the vineyards Abe is working with predate Prohibition and have been untouched by human hands since the 50s or 60s. In our conversation, Abe digs into how he has begun to carefully care for these special vineyards and make wine from them, and what these wines taste like now and promise to taste like in the future. We also talk about Abe's non-dogmatic perspective on being in the natural wine category, and his desire to make a wine a unique experience rather than something defined by grape variety. Abe's temporary winery location is outdoors in a downtown Los Angeles industrial zone, and we had the great fortune of recording this podcast while someone was jackhammering nearby throughout the entire conversation. So please bear with the authentic audio background texture. And other than that, it's a fantastic interview, so I hope you'll get as much out of it as I did. Enjoy! The sponsor for today's episode is Centralis Wine. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S Wine. You can learn more about Centralis at centraliswine.com. And full disclosure, Centralis is my winery. I started Centralis because I noticed a disconnect between the values that many wine drinkers have and the kinds of wine they choose to drink. I wanted to give those of you who love wine an option to buy wine that reflects your values. So Centralis is built on two pillars. The first is that Centralis wine will always be made with, at minimum, organically grown grapes. And the second is that we will always tell you every ingredient that was added during winemaking. Our first vintage will be released very soon. In fact, it may be available by the time you hear this. And it's pretty limited. So if you want to get some, please go to our website, centraliswine.com, and sign up for our wine list. Or go ahead and buy wine. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. We're also on Instagram at Centralis Wine, and I can't wait to share our wines with you. Abe, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate you Adam, taking the time. Adam, it's such a pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we've made it happen. This is excellent. Um, with, with a little construction in the background, it's going to be beautiful. I love it. <laughs> Great. So... When we last talked, I'll, I'll just like prompt you, but you know, basically I'd, I'd asked you what you'd cared deeply about and you started talking about uh, the vineyards that you're working with right now. You've found some really special vineyards here in Southern California. You've recently moved operations essentially to Los Angeles and you, you found some great stuff here, especially around the Mission Grapes. Some, old old vineyards uh with that basically are have been wild and growing wild mission grapes for like a hundred years at this point um do you want to jump into that and and pick up absolutely you've done a, yeah you've done a very good job recapping 
and so what I what I am really focused on now is working with old vine vineyards, especially in Southern California. And I am almost equally interested in Zinfandel as I am with Mission. But if you'll allow me to go on, I'll, I'll try to say why I'm interested in both and why as yeah, much as yeah. I love Zinfandel. And why, and why old vines and why Southern California? Okay, so, All the whys. so, uh, so what's, what's funny <laughs> is why old vines and why, why Southern California? That's harder to explain. I can give concrete reasons for why one grape variety or another. Old vines, it's partly that there is something just magical. You know, there's something, there's something that comes both from their scarcity as opposed to working yeah. with one of the thousands of vineyards that were planted in the 90s and 2000s. But there's also something about the way in which they reach back in time and connect you to other eras. Whereas a vineyard planted in the 90s or the 2000s is just another artifact of our era. And then there's right. also something you might say biologically noble about the old vineyards. And that is just that they're populated with citizens that are way older than we are. I'm almost 60, yeah. which seems already incredibly old to me. But 60 is <laughs> not that old for a vine. They're vineyards that I work with that are 20, 30, 40 years older than I am, where the vines seem absolutely vigorous, healthy. You couldn't even imagine that they're in decline compared to some other time. One of those vineyards is not is a Southern California vineyard. It's a Northern California vineyard called Bechtold. And there are six or seven of us who work in that vineyard. The vineyard is leased and farmed by the Phillips family, and they're doing an, a, an amazing and wonderful job with the vineyard and that vineyard was planted in 1870. Wow. Just incredible how old it is. And as I was saying, it's like, Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I was going to, yeah. I was going to say, it's like uh, almost like it transcends our own mortality. It's uh it's like a no fountain question. of youth quest. Almost. Right. Like, <laughs> right. And here's the strangest thing is that when you're in the vineyard, whether you're just sampling the vineyard in preparation for harvest or whether you're making farming decisions or maybe you're involved in pruning, in this vineyard, you never feel like, oh, I have to be really careful because the vines are so old and anything I do might threaten their health. The vines in this vineyard in Bechtold are so strong, so vigorous that it really seems like a vineyard in the peak of its life and not in decline. And maybe it is, maybe that's something that we're wow. just not used to that. There are 140 year old vineyards that are still in their peak. Do you think but, when they, Oh, go ahead, please. Do, do, do you think when they planted that, that they had to do the same sort of things that we currently do, which is like you plant a whole vineyard and then every year you go through and like, there's a vine that's not thriving and you replace it and you, and you just keep doing that and keep doing that. And at a certain point, they're all, they've all sort you've, you've replaced them. And just by virtue of it being so old, they've, they've survived. Or do you think, and that's what, what was happening or were they not doing that? And these vineyards just were sturdier and for whatever yeah, reason, there, maybe. There are many factors. Bechtold is a wonderful anomaly 
And you can see where the people who farmed the vineyard over the years have replanted. Maybe if the replants are 60 years old, you can't tell them from the 140-year-old vines. But the replants that are 5 or 10 or even 20 years old, you can really tell the difference between those and the original okay. vines. And yeah. in Bechtel, there are very few replants. It's always wow. been a really healthy vineyard. And one of the reasons for its health is something that a friend of mine has pointed to in her geology podcast. Her name's Brenna Quigley, and her geology podcast is called Roadside Terroir. And I Ooh. had a discussion with her about the old vine vineyards that I was interested in, in Southern California. And we both agreed that the, that the geology that they all share is a really high degree, sometimes 100% composition of sand and there are vineyards in northern california that are equally sandy and those vineyards are really inhospitable to the phylloxera louse or right. i should say the louse that spreads phylloxera and so that's one reason that the vineyards and sand have survived but there are other things that are just beneficial about dry sandy environments and i think bechtold has really benefited from that um yeah um, nice. Yeah. It's, so, so, oh, please go ahead. It, are, are those, is that a similar to environment to this, the, the mission uh, vineyard that you found here on the, in, in the Temecula area at, on the reservation? It is. And it isn't um, okay. the really the most remarkable vineyard that I work with anywhere is the vineyard that you just alluded to that we refer to as lone wolf. And it's on a Native American reservation just adjacent to the Temecula AVA. And it is its soil is even sandier than the soil in Bechtold. You could describe oh, wow. Bechtold as a sandy loam with a very high percentage of loam. Sorry, very high percentage of sand, sand and almost no loam. But um, Lone Wolf is pretty much pure sand, decomposed granite from the mountains that surround the reservation area. And its oh, health yeah. is really due to a, to a high degree to the sand that it's growing in. Nice. but And, and that sand is essentially just decomposed granite rather than the, the, the maritime influence, like the coastal yeah, sand. Yeah, you know, the, um, the sand of... Bechtold is, uh, has a very silicaceous origin in the Sierras, and it was brought down by the McCollumney River. And I'm not positive what the origin, the deep geological origin of the sand in Temecula is, but it has a very different character from the very fine quartzy sand in um, Bechtold. But the biggest right. difference is the presence of loam. There's, there's, uh, because of the nearby McCollumney, there's alluvial loam in the area too, and there has always been very healthy growth in the area. Wild vegetation at first, and then I think that there was some there were some years of farming in Lodi before Bechtold was planted to grapes. But um, in Temecula, on the flats, the sandy flats where the vines are planted, there's almost no native uh, vegetation. Because there's not enough wow. water, the the rain, the annual rainfall in Temecula is 11 or 12 inches a year, and it just doesn't support very much growth at all. There's 
there's some native grasses that spring up during the winter, but they tend to die down by about June. So at this yeah. time of the year, when you walk in the vineyard, there's nothing growing there except for the grapevines. Wow. Well, and I think you alluded to this when we talked before, even before the last time, that, you know, as this is the Organic Wine Podcast, I, I you know, obviously love organic viticulture. And, and you kind of made the comment, it's like, well, it almost doesn't matter because they just they're basically haven't been tended basically wild since, you know, I mean, whenever they stopped being tended, you know, 80 years ago or whenever it was, um, now that you're working them again, I mean, do you, do you care? Like how, obviously you care, but I mean, how are you doing that? Like, how do you approach this treasure of, of a vineyard, you know, in terms of like now working with it, taking grapes out of it, trying to, nurture its health and things like that. So your point is, is very good that the vineyard is so special and in this particular way that has to do with the fact that it has not been farmed in any consistent or careful way, probably for 60 or 70 years. And that is so uncommon in the grape growing world in general if you're not in a position to take at least pretty good care of a vineyard, you rip it out. Nobody allows vineyards to kind of go unattended and to be quasi dormant. And so this is a phenomenon that all of my friends and I who are collaborating in this vineyard, we've never had any experience with it. <laughs> so this vineyard was planted um, sometime between 1900 and 1912, we know that it was in the ground in 1912, but we're not yet sure whether it was planted much before then or not. And it stopped being farmed sometime around 1960. And we know that from the present owner of the vineyard who inherited the vineyard from his father, planted by his grandfather. And he knows, uh, he was born about 60 years ago. He knows that um, there's a tree, an oak tree in the middle of the vineyard that was a sapling when he, the present owner, was six. So the sapling in the middle of the vineyard, even if it's only three or four or five feet tall, that's a sign that they had already stopped farming the vineyard because you'd never allow an oak tree to start to grow in a vineyard. So that's a sign that at least a few years before his sixth birthday, they'd stopped farming the vineyard. So about 66, 70 right. years ago, they'd stopped farming the vineyard. Um, the result of this is that there are vines in the vineyard that have grown in a way not influenced by human activity for that period of time. And that's something you just never get to see and one of the things that you might expect from everything we know about viticulture is that vines really need human care to thrive. And what we have found in this vineyard is that these untended vines that date from between 1900 and 1912 and that stopped being farmed probably around, you know, sometime in the 50s or 60s, that these vines are very healthy. They might not be in their peak health but they respond really quickly to a little bit of care. And I can be mm. specific about what we have done to and with them this year. And, but before yeah. I go on, I, I, I want to remind you and me of something you asked about. And that is 
a kind of fear that could accompany um, going to work at this vineyard. Because especially once you realize the vineyard is actually healthy and in a certain sense doesn't require you to intervene, then you become really full of trepidation about making changes to the vineyard that could affect it negatively. Right. Yeah. So yeah, like, the uh, kinds like of the, things like that the, I'm the f- thinking about, please go ahead. I was just going to say like the, like the fear of God, like <laughs> approaching, you know, yes. the, uh, yeah. The, like, <laughs> yeah. The reverence basically. Yes. Yeah, we have a lot of reverence for the vineyard, and we also have a desire to try to make it as healthy as possible. But it's really difficult because none of us have experience with anything like this to figure out what's the best expression of our reverence. And it's balanced by a desire to do something. But we recognize that that desire to do something could be an almost silly human need to interfere when maybe the best thing is stay out of the way. But I want to tell you and your listeners what we have done so they can have a sense of the really specific nature of these decisions. So um, the vineyard is uh, only about two acres and there's, it's about, it's rectangular in shape. And our understanding is that the vineyard was originally part of a much, much larger vineyard that was probably owned by several different residents of the reservation. And all the rest of that vineyard has been torn up and turned into housing. And so there are a couple very small plots on the order of a tenth of an acre nearby where there are old vines that probably were part of the same original planting. But other than those very small plots, this is the most significant thing left over at about two acres. And it's roughly rectangular in shape. And what's really interesting is that people have tended to the center of this rectangle and allowed the periphery to kind of go wild. So once you get past the wild periphery, you can see vines that are not radically different from other old vine vineyards in California that have been tended continuously for a hundred years. They have the look of those old vine vineyards. And this is roughly maybe 40% of the vines in the vineyard have been cared for in this way. And when we set foot in the vineyard for the first time about a year ago, um, my sense was that these vines that we were now looking at in July of 2019 had been pruned at the latest in 2017, maybe 2016. So there's that much space in between. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the vineyard not only had not been pruned recently, but this spring we started looking really carefully at the old unpruned vines. And we found that as hard as we looked, we couldn't find any pruning cuts. And I have worked in vineyards that date back to about 1900 in Europe that have been cared for continuously. And you can see the, you can see pruning cuts maybe going back 60 or 70 years. It's kind of like counting rings in a tree. You can count the pruning cuts going backwards in time. And so we spent a lot of time looking at these vineyards, these vines, and we couldn't find any pruning cuts at all. So it's really amazing. It's vines growing in this kind of serpentine way where the shoots tangle up with each other and the vines form a kind of loose knotted pile 
And there's nothing mm. like a central trunk or the central trunk or what is kind of like a central trunk is just a thick area at the very lowest point closest to the soil. But there still could be instead of four or six or eight shoots coming out of that central point, there could be 20 shoots coming out of it. And then another 20 wow. shoots coming out of the circumference maybe as much as six or eight feet away from the central area. And those shoots are due to grapes having formed and ripened and then fallen to the earth and sprouted and made new plants. So each plant <laughs> in this crazy area has a central it's still not fair to call it a trunk. You could call it like a kind of main node. And that main node is goes back to whenever the vine was planted, but it's surrounded by its own offspring. And wow. those offspring are the result of sexual reproduction, which is another thing that nobody in general allows to happen in vineyards. So it's not only a mission vineyard, it's a mission vineyard that has some number of vines that are the result of sexual reproduction, probably not just with the other mission vines in the vineyard, but probably with native California grape varieties that would have grown in the surrounding area. And let's say a neighbor had a Zinfandel vineyard that's now been torn up. Some of the vines in this vineyard are the offspring of Zinfandel and mission. Right. And are they fruit producing? Because I know sometimes you... It's just a crapshoot. You can get a sterile vine. Right. And so we have not done a study yet to determine how many of them are fruit producing. But the answer is they are definitely fruit producing. I can't tell you oh, how wow. many, whether it's all of them. But for sure, it looks like most of them. And that's the other crazy thing that we noticed. We, we harvested fruit from the vineyard last year and made wine from it. And the wine's really good. And it's so... All of our kind of excitement about the vineyard is rewarded by the actual quality of the wine that we're getting from it. Mm. And we went down to the vineyard at the very end of September 2019 and harvested as much fruit as we could. I brought nine friends, so there were 10 of us. We harvested 1,600 pounds of fruit, and it took us several hours to do it because the fruit is kind of hidden, especially in the old tangled vines. So it wasn't yeah. easy to pick. And then we also completely underestimated how much fruit there was in the vineyard. So we didn't bring enough containers to bring it home. So we had to stop at 1600, both because we were pretty exhausted, but also because at this point we were simply putting uh, clusters in the back of somebody's Jeep. Like we didn't even have bins <laughs> for all of them. Wow. But um, I estimated that we left about a third of the fruit behind. So oh, if wow. I'm right about that, there was a little bit more than a ton last year. We expect three to four tons this year. So we expect to have tripled the production and we've done it without irrigating, without even applying compost, without tilling. The only thing we did was careful pruning. And so the funny thing is we removed wood from the vineyard, but we did a good enough job that removing this growth that in a way was an impediment to the health of the vineyard has already restored so much vigor to it that the vineyard is producing about three times as much fruit as it did before. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, we that's amazing. We for sure didn't expect that. 
Like I thought, I thought that the process of regenerating the vineyard might take four or five years and might require some tilling, might require some compost a- application. And we were just hoping this year that the pruning we did didn't damage the vineyard. That was the only thing that we were hoping for. And not only did it not damage it, it really invigorated it in such a way that we're going to get more fruit. And the vines look better than they did last year. So exciting. It is so exciting. And and are you uh, allowing people to purchase the lone wolf from last year? No, we, we, we distributed it all to friends and family. We weren't ready for okay. commercial production last year, but this year our intention is to make a commercial amount of Lone Wolf. Um, I haven't, I, it's funny, I'm bad enough at numbers that I can't tell you off the top of my head how many bottles we expect, but I think that, yeah. I think we got nearly 20 cases last year. So if I'm right about tripling the amount of fruit this year we'll get 60 cases which is a real amount of wine yeah and uh we will release that as part of other wines that we're going to make and release under the name the los angeles river wine company so i I guess with the reverence that you have to take into the vineyard there must be some trepidation in the wine making too because you could really screw it up there as well you could you know everything that you've tried to capture from this amazing vineyard could be lost if something goes awry so what what do you do when you bring I agree it in with that to make it? and and um and I think that if we'd had more fruit last year we might have done maybe two different ways of making the wine to make sure that at least Mm. one of them was good. But we felt like we only had enough fruit for one fermentation. And we also felt lucky. So, which is not the same thing as being confident for sure. Not the same thing as being arrogant, but we felt like we (laughs) had been in a way blessed to even be led to the vineyard. We felt like the harvest had gone really well and the fruit looked good and tasted great. So we felt like we were kind of on a roll. So we just took a shot and, and we made only one wine and that wine turned out really well. And it will for sure guide what we do this year. So I don't even know that we'll do an experiment this year. If we get, if we get a little bit more fruit next year, which I think is likely, then maybe next year will be the first time that we tried to make two different wines from the vineyard. But right now, I think what we're simply going to do is, to a really high degree, repeat what we did last year. Can and can you talk about that? What you're what you do with winemaking? Yeah. So so. All of my wines at Scolium and the wines that I'm making now at the Los Angeles River Wine Company are guided by principles that are either identical or similar. And the only difference between identical and similar is that the vineyards that we work with in Southern California might to some degree end up being different from the Northern California vineyards. So we might have to apply some different principles. I'll give you one example. Mm There's a Sauvignon Blanc vineyard that we've worked with in Sonoma since 2005. And we get fruit from two different sections of the vineyard. And from the beginning, it seemed to me right that the fruit from one of the sections should make a wine that's really not so different from traditional wines made in Sancerre, meaning use SO2 to inhibit malolactic fermentation. You use SO2 and maybe other techniques involving the vessels that you ferment and age in to minimize contact with oxygen. And because you haven't allowed the wine to go through mallow, you filter it before bottling. 
And we only make one or two wines a year from Northern California fruit that we treat in that way. Everything else is no SO2 and no filtration. And so far, I haven't seen a vineyard in Southern California that looks like what it's calling out for is that treatment. So at the moment, we anticipate not making any wines where we inhibit malolactic fermentation. That means that everything will be made with no SO2 or low SO2 and no filtration. Mm -hmm. But I might find a vineyard that seems to call for a different treatment. And then another principle that um, for sure we apply at both wineries is the following. If you work with the skins of the fruit, then you work with the whole cluster. So we don't destem. The last mm. time that we destemmed regularly was around 2010. And the last time that we used a destemmer, uh, the machine, at all in any winery that I've worked in was 2015. But Mission, it turns out, requires an exception to this principle because Mission is super tannic. So if you mm -hmm. work in our normal way and don't destem and make a wine from the skins and the seeds and the stems all together, and you allow the stems to sit in the developing wine as the sugar turns to alcohol, it's very hard to keep that wine from becoming too tannic. And mm -hmm. so I got advice from my friend and colleague Raj Parr last year to destem the mission. I couldn't imagine that we got from Lone Wolf. I couldn't imagine completely going back on this way of making wine. So we destemmed 70%. And by God, the wine is so tannic that what it, what it uh, resembles, even 70% destemmed, is it resembles Nebbiolo made as a skin fermentation, not made as a rosé, more than anything else in the world. So he was right. Wow. Mission yeah. is super tannic. So we anticipate destemming by hand, not using a machine, but destemming by hand the mission next year to about the same degree, 70%. But everything else will be made without destemming. There's skins, then the whole the whole cluster. I've destemmed um, 200 pounds by hand, and that took half a day. You guys have quite a job ahead of you. Yeah, so we, we <laughs> did it with, I think, eight people, and it did take two or three hours, and we didn't use any equipment at all. There's a, there's a really traditional way to do it uh, that is still widely used in Europe. I don't know how widely used it is in the United States, but you can use um, tough rectangular wire, sometimes called chicken wire, but it has to be pretty tough. And you can make oh. a, a screen with that wire and you just you just rub the clusters across the screen and Got the crisscrossing wires do a pretty good job pulling the berries off the cluster. So you're not like picking each berry off by hand. But the other way we did that worked pretty well is we foot tread everything. Everything we make gets foot treaded. And so yeah. we foot treaded 100% of the mission from Lone Wolf last year. And then we just like picked the stems out by hand from yeah. the mash made by foot treading. Yeah, I've done that as well. <laughs> Again, a, a big chore to a certain extent, a sticky yeah. chore. <laughs> yes, definitely sticky. Um, but I love that. that the chicken wire, I actually, I'm, I'm probably doing a little experimental home brew this year. Uh -huh. And that chicken wire sounds like a great idea. I might 
use that. That sounds really smart. I totally so, get that. Since you're, tra- you're talking about your winemaking, do you mind if I reverse things briefly? And I know that your listeners might know to some degree what you're up to, but I know to only the smallest degree. So would you <laughs> mind briefing me what you're doing in winemaking right now? Yeah, sure. I mean, what I was just talking about is uh, actually there's like a, a it created a little neighborhood group. I, I live here in South Central and it's, there's a great community of people that gather for like morning walks or runs. And then that group has created these various offshoot groups. And so I was like, hey, I'm into wine. I could create a sort of education and and gathering group around wine, which I did. And now this year, um, I, I asked who wanted to maybe learn to make wine. So there's a, a vineyard up in Antelope Valley that we're going to pick grapes. There's, I think, four different people. And, you know, just this is like people who have never made wine before. And so I'm talking, I've talked them into, you know, coming up, they'll each pick around 100 to 125 pounds of uh, grapes. And then we'll go through the process of making wine. Um, so that's more like an educational thing. Like I just want to get people excited about wine, learning about it. And making it and that's just home wine making stuff and then centralis is our winery that we just over a year ago started my wife when i say we my wife wendy and i mm-hmm. um started just over a year ago because you know we we did we saw this gap we have a lot of friends who drink wine and they they care very much about the world and the environment and and being a positive force and a solution mm-hmm. to the problems and and they drink wine that doesn't necessarily reflect those values and so we're mm-hmm. like hey we see a gap we see a disconnect here so we wanted to help to bridge that gap by creating wine that's grown organically or better and and making some really delicious wine that people love to drink that's an easy option for them and also reflects their values so we're 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 getting most of our grapes from our first vintage um Santa Barbara County. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some actually out where Raj is growing in the Santa Rita Hills, I'm getting some really nice Pinot and then some uh, Morvedra. We're doing a, a Morvedra from a biodynamic one that's further inland uh, up in the county, in Santa Barbara County, and also a, a barrel-aged rosé that's a, a Grenache Syrah blend that we, we put in uh, that's actually got some new American oak on it and has spent about 10 months in barrel. Oh, interesting. We actually, huh? Yeah, we bottle so we bottle our first vintage Wednesday. So great, that's be, so exciting. Uh, yeah, and that's that's that. And then we'll see next year. I mean, already making plans and expanding and trying new things and great. want to do some fun stuff. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for asking. Um, and I, I'm gonna ask you a, a, a probe. I don't know. I mean, this is a. a I don't know what kind of a question this is, a reactionary question to get a reaction out of you. So sure. I think you would be put in the camp of natural wine. I would say a lot right. of people would refer to you as somebody in that category. Do you see yourself in that category or do you see a different category? Are you, are you comfortable I, I with do. that category? I, I, see myself, I see myself in the category because the category exists outside of me. So the question about whether I see myself in it demands stepping back and looking at this much, much larger phenomenon and asking about my place in it. And I feel like there are wines that I make that could not be more appropriately categorized than to be put in with other natural wines. No commercial cultured yeast, no SO2, no filtration, organic grape growing, all of those things. But I think the difference is 
many people are really deeply committed to those principles and can't imagine making wine in any other way. And that I do not feel. I am still yeah, no, interested. You... Yeah, go, go ahead, please. I'm just, I was going to quote you to you. So, <laughs> uh, but just reading your website, you, I love the, the, there's a line that you say that the, the wine is of the microbes, but not for the microbes, which I, I think speaks to a real, like, like stepping away from the ideological dogmatism and being a yeah. little practical and a little yeah. pragmatic. Yeah. You know, um, in a way I would, I, hesitate, really, I like that. I appreciate that. I, I definitely want to avoid dogmatism. I feel like I want I want to avoid dogmatism in any endeavor. And so my <laughs> winemaking is not marked by dogmatism. It's also not true that I'm making wines that are filtered to avoid being dogmatic. I'm making them because I want to make them, because I enjoy drinking them, and because I think other people would enjoy drinking them. And as I said earlier, there's some vineyards that I work with that present themselves in such a way that I feel like my talents, my skills, my aims are best going to work with this vineyard by making a wine that would not fit within the boundaries of natural wine. That for me is the exception, not the rule. But I do feel like there are vineyards that I come across where I feel like what I can best do with this vineyard is to make a white wine that doesn't go through malolactic fermentation. And that wine will be by definition, not natural. And, but that doesn't mean that anything goes for me. I'm for sure willing to use SO2. The wines that Mm -hmm. we made this year for the Los Angeles river wine company, most of them are zero zero wines, but not all of them are zero zero. None got SO2 at the beginning of fermentation. But some of them got a little bit of SO2 during aging. Some of them got a little bit of SO2 before bottling because we thought that it would it, the addition of the SO2 would make for a better wine, not necessarily a cleaner wine. I don't know if, if that's the distinction, but I might sometimes say a clearer wine that one of the things I feel like SO2 can do is bring clarity and sharpness to a wine. could be an artificial clarity and sharpness, like using a filter on a photograph. I don't mind that distinction. And if that's the right way for understanding it, I feel like, sure, full speed ahead. But with most of the wines that I make, I'm looking for something else that is best achieved by not using SO2 and uh, not just by not inoculating with commercial yeast, but to make sure that the microbiology of the wine is actually as healthy, as vigorous, and as complex as possible. And that is usually, usually, but not always achieved with the lowest degree of intervention. So there are some people who think of intervention as an evil in itself. I don't think of it as an evil in itself. And I also think it's a very difficult distinction to bring to bear both in farming and wine baking to say what counts as an intervention and what doesn't. But what I can say for sure is that in most of the wines that I make, we're doing everything we can to make the microbiology as healthy as possible and as complex as possible. And in general, the best way to achieve that is by getting out of the way, not by doing particular things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, I noticed something just, I don't know, it's an observation that you can, again, react to. I mean, when you come up through sort of traditional 
wine thought, I guess, in the, the, the wine industry as, as we've grown up with it in the last 30 years or whatever, it's very uh, grape variety dominated, mm -hmm. if you mm -hmm. did, like is one way to think about it. It's very like, you know, this is a great place to grow Pinot. This is a great place to grow right. Cab. The wine is of Pinot. The wine is of Cabernet or Chardonnay. And we know these things and people talk about them as their preferences. Oh, I like Chardonnay. I like, you know, I like a Sauvignon Blanc, I, you know, and then different styles of making those grapes. Whereas I, what I notice with, with you and, and, and others, but you know, what I noticed with you is that that has seemed to be something that's left as a, you know, it's like, we know about it, but it's not that important. It's more about the story where, you know, it's more about an experience of a story of a, of uniqueness, of a, of a unique place, a unique element that is only expressible in this form. And yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree strongly. I, I can't imagine at this stage in my winemaking looking for a vineyard that has a particular grape variety in it. It's not that I want to work. That's just not the way that my thinking is going right now, that I want to work with some grape variety. Some of my right. friends tease me about how little Pinot I've made, and some of the <laughs> little experiments I've made have turned out well, but not all of them. And I never think to myself, oh, geez, before I quit, I should figure out how to make Pinot Noir. That's just not, it's not a thinking that I have. And I also yeah. don't think, oh, I'd really like to drink a Cabernet that I made. I just don't think that way. I, I hear about vineyards that I'm interested in working with. And I'm always interested in what the grape varieties that are planted in the vineyard, but it's never driven by the grape variety. Right. And I would say... There was a time when if I heard about an old vine mission vineyard, I might have so far misunderstood mission that I might have not worked with the vineyard because it had mission. And I'm trying to shed all of those prejudices and the remaining mm. ones, um, the remaining prejudices still affect some old vine vineyards. In Lodi, there's a grape called Flame Tokay or Tokai that was a very important grape to the history of grape growing in Lodi. And I for yeah. sure am hesitant to try to make wine from that. And then um, there are some other grape varieties um, that are really aromatic. And I feel like I'm just not the person to, to make wine from those. Muscat, I'm a little bit afraid of. Um, but that's it. Yeah, mm -hmm. so what's good is that there's nothing that I'm seeking out and very little that I'm avoiding. Nice. Well, you're, you're, uh, you know, I, I know we want to keep this short and tight. Yeah. Um, but what's happening with your winery? What's, what are people going to be able to come visit you soon in Los Angeles? What's going on? Yeah. You know, um, we had hoped to open the winery on Memorial day and have visitors. And I had a business plan that I've been working on for years they really depended for its success on hundreds of people coming to the winery each week. Mm. And I recognized really early on that it was not going to be possible to fulfill that business plan anytime soon. And, you know, I still work on it all the time. I think about it every day, but I really don't know when in the current medical and social environment whether 
when we're going to open up to visitors at all. So I can tell you this, we're 100% determined to make wine in the city of Los Angeles this year. I'm nearly 100% sure that we'll make it in the same place that we did last year. But whether we'll be able to receive visitors at that location, I just don't know yet. And for sure, yeah. I now have a business plan that doesn't depend on hundreds of visitors. Great. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's it's upended a lot of people's business plans, I think, this yeah. time. Yeah. And I just feel, I really feel lucky that I've been able to stay on my feet long enough to still feel confident that we can harvest. Have you always approached uh, your winemaking with a, a pretty tight business plan, plan, like when you first started no, out? No, but it. but I brought in investors to do this, and for sure gotcha. I felt like yeah. I owed them that. Absolutely, yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Well, yeah, and I've so, gotten good at it. I mean, not in the yeah. sense that I'm <laughs> not in the sense a gun for that hire that it's going to work out, but just <laughs> I, I now plan with a really high degree of detailed precision. Oh, great! Well, I yeah. might have to ask for your help <laughs> or examples. Um, well, so in lieu of uh, having a place to visit, where would you suggest people learn more about what you're doing, or get in touch with you, or follow your you? And follow your progress. You know, the the, the best thing is through um, the Scolium Wines Instagram feed, which I update almost daily. And I try to make sure that there's nothing important related to my winemaking, whether it's Los Angeles winemaking or the Northern California vineyards. I try to make sure there's nothing that doesn't get mentioned there. And we will nice. eventually have a website full of information for the Los Angeles River Wine Company, but it doesn't exist yet. Got it. Okay. Um, but Scolium, S-C-H-O-L-I-U-M. Yes. Right? Yep. Okay, great. Well, Abe, thank you so much for doing this. Thank I, you, it, Adam. It, we finally did it, and it was worth the yeah. wait. <laughs> yep. Thank uh, you. 